Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Nicole Alvino. Nicole is the founder and CEO of First Step, a leading enterprise SaaS company in the workforce engagement and intelligence space. She is a passionate entrepreneur making millions of global employees more supported and productive and enterprise customers, including 40 of the Fortune 100 more agile with workforce intelligence. Previously, Nicole was the founder and CEO of Derma Lounge and started her career at Enron, where she learned important lessons about how to lead authentically and transparently. She received her BA in economics and Japanese at Vanderbilt University and attended Stanford University Graduate School of Business for her MBA. Welcome. Good to see you. Hi, Shauna. Thanks for having me. Okay. Rapid fire. Um, mountains or water? Water. Favorite type of cuisine? Japanese. Oh, yum. Wait, have you been to... Oh, yes. I, know I lived in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like know this. Um, well, Perfect. Um, bucket list vacation place that you want to go visit. Mm, hiking through Bhutan. Wow. Okay. Are you planning that, or is that just like down the road? Down the road, planning it in my head. In your head, mm-hmm. with with or without the boys. With the boys. Oh, I love that. We're gonna get into that. Um. Okay. Okay. Uh, top three words that would describe you as a CEO. Mm. Empathetic, direct, and uh, transparent. Love it. Um, you may not have this, but I'm curious if you have a quote that you think of or a favorite quote. I have several, um, depending on what I need. So one I love, it's Colin Powell's, it's optimism is a force multiplier. Um, There's another one that is something to the effect of Oscar Wilde of everyone else has already taken, so be yourself, something along those lines. I love. And then one... Another one that I love is actually one of my best friend's fathers, who I was really close with in college, and his was, don't sweat the small stuff, and by the way, it's all small stuff. 
Awesome. I feel like these are all ones when I'm asking them, I just hope someone's kids are listening, especially that one. Right. And the, and the second one too. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone else is taken. Um, what was your very first concert? Oh, this is so embarrassing. Um, Beach Boys after a USC football game at uh, the LA Coliseum when I was a That's kid. That's not embarrassing. They're serious business. Mm-hmm. Um, so super curious. Um, what did you want to be when you were little? Like little meaning like maybe fifth grade. First woman president. <gasps> That's still a possibility, is it? I, I think I might have taken a different path and... I don't know if I need that much uh, public flogging, but. Well, now things have just become that. So it's exactly. Just, it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, that's amazing. So this is a perfect segue. Like who put that in your mind that that was even a possibility when you grew up? I don't know. I think I just thought that that was something. I had this big thing of wanting to be the first there was an there was a moment where it was sort of astronaut first woman on the moon or first woman and I I, I just thought that um, president would be it would be a good aspiration. And so, did you have role models or like when you were um, if you like close your eyes and you're thinking um, like when you're the boys' age? How old are the boys right now? Your kids? Eight, nine, and eleven. Okay, so when you're eight, nine, eleven. Is there someone that you're thinking about that's like, oh my gosh, that woman is so badass. Like, I can't imagine being her. I don't think so. If I look back, you know, I I had some really great teachers along the way. And I have this funny story of of when I was in first grade and I was a reading group of one. Somehow I just loved to read and had learned to read already. And when she would have to go to the office, she put me in front of the rest of my little classmates and have me read a book to them. And so I think I, I embrace that. I'm also a first child, firstborn out of four. And so I would sit and read to my class and have my children get the carpet squares. And so maybe I, I enjoyed so that, that type of big authority in the first grade. Yeah. Classroom. The leadership thing. Where did you mm-hmm. grow up? Where did you grow up? In Huntington beach, California. Oh my gosh. So how do you like Seattle? Like the, the gray. <laughs> Actually, today's kind of nice. It's not too bad. Well, I had a big stint about 20 years in San Francisco. So yeah. Is there, some, where's your family time. now? Mostly Southern California and my sister's in Nashville. Oh, not bad. So tell me, walk me through like, what's, um, what's a day in the life of Nicole in Huntington beach? Is it like what I'm picturing? Like I, for some reason, I picture that just like the most utopian childhood. It was pretty great. You don't, you didn't realize until you left. I mean, we did definitely spend summers going to the beach. I was not a surfer. I played volleyball on the beach. My best friend and I would yeah, boogie board, play volleyball. We had this wonderful thing called junior lifeguards where you, great thing for any kids in Southern California, but basically you do running and learn about ocean safety and swim around the pier and um kind of like boot camp but you don't really think it's boot camp because you're outside on the beach yeah so those are some of my memories I love that and so I'm guessing because you were reading young that you were a good student were you just good in the kind of reading English that side or also good the math and sciences yeah I loved the math and sciences 
So you were, when you were little, um, I guess, what did you want to study and how did you choose to go? I know you went to college in Vander, at Vanderbilt. How did you, I mean, from Southern California, why Vanderbilt? Yeah, so I had this thing that I didn't want to go to school in California because I knew that I thought I could always come back. Um, and I wanted something different, but for some reason, I thought the Northeast would be too cold. My dad had grown up in New York and always just said how the Northeast was so cold and horrible and we were soft California kids and wouldn't be able to cut it. So somehow I targeted schools in the Southeast and I had a very um, Italian, pretty strict um economist father who literally had me do a matrix of all of the things that I wanted in a college and list out the college and of course at the top of his matrix I knew I wanted to study economics and I had um was pretty fluent in Spanish I had just spent the summer living in Venezuela as a foreign exchange student and so I wanted and to try a new language Japanese was the one and so I was looking at schools that had all these other possibilities to study abroad and do these different things. And my dad was like, no, no, no. The top one is you have to look at the economics ranking and that's how you have to choose a school. So it was on my list. That wasn't and the top of the list. And um, it ended up so being- they just had a really good econ program? Sort of, not exceptional. That wasn't what, that was what my father was focused on and that was his ranking, but that wasn't necessarily my ranking. Yeah. And what did he, um, I'm guessing he was in business or what did he do? Yeah, he was an economist. So very, almost like statistician, kind of high num numbers, a lot of um, deep analysis and and thinking, but not necessarily commercial minded um, business per se. Yeah. And are you more like your mom or more like your dad? And I guess what attributes have you taken from them? Yeah, I'm probably some of each. So I think that intellectual curiosity, business sense, definitely my dad. So he stopped, kind of took his economics background and then he was an entrepreneur. So I saw that growing up. Um, and my mom is very social, involved with a lot of friends and activities. And so I definitely have that, that part from her um, and just have memories of her hosting her sorority groups and doing different things with different groups of, of friends. And I think that's something that I, I definitely do. My friend groups are very important to me. Um, and so I think I take both, both parts of them. Yeah. And when you said, like, when you got into Vanderbilt, was that, um, what else were you looking at? And, um, was that like in retrospect, the right choice for you? Yeah, I think absolutely. I one of the um, I don't know, fights is the right word with my dad. We had I grew up in Southern California. My mom and a bunch of my family went to USC, and that was more of a tried and true type of situation. And I ended up getting almost like a full ride merit scholarship. Um, and I actually just didn't want to go there because I felt like it would be more of the same. A lot of people from my high school went there. I would have known the sorority I would have been in, and it just wasn't something that I wanted to do. I also got accepted into the business program. And one of my memories, I was interviewing with the dean, and I was asking them about study abroad. 
And the dean was sort of like, if you're in the business program, you don't study abroad, but I really wanted to study abroad. And I kept asking this dean. And after my dad is like, oh my gosh, like you do not tell the dean of the business school that you want to study abroad if you're going to get into this program. But anyway, I ended up doing what what I wanted to do. I'm a bit stubborn. And so um, ended up going to Vanderbilt and studying abroad. So tell me about Vanderbilt. Yeah. So Vanderbilt, um, and I think it was a great, it was a great school for me. Um, very different, obviously it was in the South. I laughed that I showed up with my like flip-flops and wet hair out of the shower. And all of these girls were like lots of makeup and full oh, blow yeah. dry hair and yeah. Hot um, rollers pearls, the whole night. Yeah, yeah. Pearls, pearls at the football game. So it was a little bit of a, a culture shock. I was friends with all the California kids at first. Um, and ended up, you know, have obviously really, really enjoying it. Um, I think it's about 6,000 undergrad and then, um, probably half that in their different grad schools. I think, you know, like SC, it's become a charter to get into than when I went there. But, um, yeah. And one of the other stories, so I looked at schools all in the Southeast, Vanderbilt was always in my top kind of couple. And then I applied for this program. It was called an Ingram Scholar Program that looked at um, kids who were interested in business or professional schools, but also did a lot of community service. And that was important to them. And so the the person who started this program was Bronson Ingram, and he did a lot of philanthropy. And so I ended up, actually didn't get it my freshman year, but as part of that interview process, going back to see the school for a second time really cemented that I wanted to go there. And so I went there and ended up applying again um, and was part of this program for the, my sophomore through senior year, which and was what, pretty what incredible. Was program, what was the program? Yeah, it was a small group of, it was basically kid, um, kids, we were young adults then, I guess. Um, <laughs> and they would bring people who, um, like different CEOs of companies to come talk to us just about about different aspects of leadership. And so it was interesting, you know, I think probably now in undergrad, there's more of that, but I, it was it was relatively new then. And some of the the peers in my program just have gone on to do other really phenomenal things and really thinking about how to use use business in it to change the world and do things with really positive impact. So, and that would seem so progressive back then because like now obviously yeah. social social impact yeah. is so big and mm-hmm. um, talk about something that would influence you and kind of stick with you and what a unique opportunity. Like I actually haven't heard of that. That's super cool. Yeah, that's, it was really cool. Really yeah, it was really neat. And it was also kind of different from my core social group too. So it was just mm-hmm. fun to have um, different different groups of um, of people and that formative, formative time. Yeah. So what's crazy is I remember when we were first talking about, um, you know, your background and your career and you're like such a badass and so humble about it. But when you told me Enron, I like just kind of freaked out because I've been recruiting for 30 years and early days Enron, it was just like, obviously the subject, like how did, Mm -hmm. did they recruit you out of off campus or how did that, uh, was that your first job out of school? It was, and I got recruited. They had some people from Vanderbilt who had done well there and they really liked, Enron really liked um, Vanderbilt. So that's how I learned about it. 
And I remember kind of my economics um, major, it was either investment banking or management consulting. So like a McKinsey. And I remember thinking both of them were kind of boring or a little bit tried and true. And then Enron came and kind of offered the best of both. And then I'll never forget, I saw the sticky note up in my little desk. I was the president of my sorority. So I lived in the the this house, but it was this little sticky note that their mission was to change, be its engine, then be prepared to capitalize on the new opportunities, the endless, or the new opportunities, the endless possibilities that change creates. And I just loved that. I thought that was so cool. I still How do you remember it. that? No, I know. That's what I mean. I still remember it. The fact that I like see the sticky note and I'm like, I want to work for this company. And I first had learned about it. My favorite economics professor who um, I'm still in touch with first told me about it when I was starting to interview. And he's like, you know, so-and-so went to work there. They really like it. This would be great. And then I started that process and it was just like, okay, this place seems just really cool. Yeah. Um, moving to Houston was not my first choice, <laughs> but um, I I thought that I would be you know, li living around, living in, you know, an opportunity to also have a, a international experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know that a lot of times right out of school, kids, when you talk about going investment banking or going consulting, go the analyst route. And I know that you started mm -hmm. out as an analyst. Is it like investment banking where you're kind of working around the clock or kind of more chill? Um, <clears throat> so what I was doing was not very chill because I was doing, I was in a finance role. So different people were in different tracks, but I ended up doing, um, working in structured finance. And so doing some things and there were some of it was more chill, but some of it was definitely, you know, at the office into the wee hours of the morning and cranking on all the different financial models. Um, but I think and if, if the boys decide that they want to be, um, you know, pursue an entrepreneurial career. Um, I guess my question is, do you think that that type of role is a good foundation? Because a lot of people that I've had on, ironically, that have found a lot of success started in this type of, this type of route. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a combo of getting the shit kicked out of them, like showing yeah. that grit and kind of perseverance and also um, just kind of paying their dues almost. And, and then also just deeply understanding how to analyze companies. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It just seems like a really nice foundation of just getting like a broad understanding of business. Yeah. I'm a huge fan. And I think about that all the time. It's so funny. My boys and their different personalities and people who were hiring out of college and what types of roles. I mean, I'm a big fan of whether it's the financial analyst route or even the the management consulting, just a solid foundation of business and understanding different types of business, understanding, um, you know, just different, you see different types of politics too. And I do think there is something in the getting the shit kicked out of you, working really hard um, and doing that for the moment. Do I know, do I, you know, did I want to do that for my career? Absolutely not. Do I think that, you know, my boys can choose to do what they want. I don't imagine any of them becoming, you know, life or investment bankers, but obviously there's a lot of doors that can open if you have that strong financial experience and understanding. Yeah. 
So you were there for a few years. It sounds like you were there in Houston and then a little stint in London. Um, yes. Was that like they recruited you or you kind of like put your hand up and said, hey, is there a chance I can go to Europe? Yeah, it was kind of the latter, a little bit of both. So I'm hyper competitive. And so they're always there in Enron was a competitive place. So I think it was probably a good fit for me. And so we were on these rotation systems where you would get kind of recruited to be in one job. And then once your year was up, a little bit of you have to go find your next job, they recruit you. And there were some jobs that were more lucrative than others. And so I was recruited into one of the more lucrative ones at the time it was the CFO's SWAT team. And so it was doing all of these crazy deals and things that fast forward turned out to be illegal. And my bosses <laughs> went to jail and there are some very crazy, crazy. stories. Where are these people stories. now? Um, like do you some track? people have started. Yeah. So some people, some people have started. Um, it's funny. It's, <laughs> it's ironic. Some people have actually started companies that have then purchased some of the old Enron assets and are operating them. Um, yeah. Crazy. So yeah. when you, when, when you say hyper-competitive, I always kind of like zero in on that because a lot of people would describe themselves as being competitive. Mm -hmm. Is it a, like, I hate to lose or I love to win. And where does that competitive spirit come from? Yeah, I think it's both. I don't know how you love to win unless you hate to lose, but I think it's more of, I love, yeah, it's more of, I love to win. And yeah, I keep to lose. Um, <laughs> I think that my dad was really competitive. And I think it was him being like, you can always, you know, it's always like, you can always be better and sort yeah. of, you shouldn't be satisfied. And I have this memory of, I was like seven years old on the soccer field playing like non-competitive soccer. And it would be like, where's your peripheral vision? How can you not see the ball? This like yeah. yelling Italian accent. And I'm sort of like, I'm seven, like peripheral vision. Every people are just trying to connect with the ball. So I think it was a, a high bar being set and yeah. So in all, I mean, I guess this is your outlet now. This is like in your business. And so outside of work, are there any competitive outlets that you have? I mean, I always joke because like a lot of people, um, you know, they find whatever it is that they were competitive athletes and now they're not competing. They just find whatever it is that they can compete in. And some people, you know, you'll play like board games and they like freak out if they lose. Like, are you competitive across the board or just in elements where you're actually competing? Yeah, I know it's a good question. I think I probably... I'm probably keeping score even places where I, I shouldn't. I think that's probably part of my nature, but, um, you know, do I play professional or competitive sports? No, I tried a small stint at pickleball. Then I ruptured my Achilles tendon. So that, <laughs> I remember that, um, we're yeah, getting back so, out there though. We're going to get you back out there. Exactly. So yeah, <laughs> look, I like to ski. I like to get, keep my ski game better. I'm not by any stretch competing there. Um, yeah. You're competing yeah. with yourself. I love that. With myself. With mm -hmm. yourself. Um, so tell me about your choice to go back to school to get your MBA. Was that, um, yeah, I need to know everything about that. And another question that I'm super curious about, because obviously if it's Stanford, totally worth it. Mm -hmm. But some people, when they go back and get their MBA at a kind of average school, I'm always mm -hmm. curious kind of the why. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, yeah, it's good. And so in my case, so I was at that time, Needed to get out of Houston. Um, there was an opportunity in London. 
wanted to go do that. So I, which was great. So I lived in London for a year and it was, it was a crazy year. It was 2001. So it was 9-11. And so I was kind of experiencing 9-11 as an expat and then Enron bankruptcy at the end of the year. So before those things, I had decided to apply to business school. I was kind of off and on. And even now it's funny, but the, the CFO at Enron's like, don't go back to business school. You've got a great future here. Um, and I was just toying with all sorts of all sorts of things. Like, should I go be in the CIA? And then I said, well, I have a real problem with authority and being told what to do. So I don't think I would do well in the CIA, but there was some sort of an adventure that I was craving, I think. Um, so I just went ahead to, to apply and I said, look, I'm only gonna apply to Harvard and Stanford and we'll just see. And I remember that my, um, my Stanford essay or application was due one week after Harvard. And that was the week when the first Enron article came out exposing what then like crashed so, so quickly. And so this was like October. Um, and I, I remember changing something in my essay about like almost defending um, what Enron was doing and about the, you know, the, the external climate will change and strong leadership is about weathering the storm. And then, you know, I laugh, but then two months later, Enron's bankrupt. And then I was worried. I'm like, oh my gosh, these people are reading my application. They're going to think I'm unethical because I worked for some of these people. Two of the three people who wrote my letters of recommendation, like went to jail and so then I had this whole other, yeah, freak out that no one's going to accept me because they think I'm a bad person. But what was your what was your essay about? And did you write the same essay for Harvard? It was different. It was, I mean, look, they all kind of asked the same. Stanford was their fame, their question is what matters most to you and why? And so that's, you know, open-ended, but it gets to what matters most to you. And my mine was just all about learning and love of learning and love of experiencing. Um, and so somehow I, whoa, what, what a crazy the, story. That's nuts. Yeah. And so, um, how has that served you? Like having your MBA, is it, is it more the, the academic rigor as far as what you learned in the case studies and all that, or the network or all of it? No, for me, it was really the people. And I even questioned, so after, after Enron and that, that very deeply affected me. I mean, these are people who like I worked directly for, and I had a hard time. And I even questioned whether or not I should go into business after that. Um, I always thought that business could be something and should be something that also can drive positive change and impact for, for the better. Obviously Enron did not do that. And so I, after I, I learned I got into school, I had several months before um, Stanford started. And so I, I went on my own personal walkabout, I like to call it. I took a backpack and went to um, Fiji, New Zealand and Australia for like five months and just went, went by myself. And um, I, my first idea, I was going to write my book. And in those days, the laptops were very big and heavy. And I put that brick in my backpack um and like yeah I didn't write the book I ended up just um hiking and surfing and diving and meeting really interesting people and anyway part of what I was trying to process was should I go back to business school and 
when I would meet some of these people who are kind of the lifer challenge like issues with people back at home or family and it's sort of like I'm not running away from anything and then when I would be out on the you know the two-week liveaboard diving and I would come back and give the the um, owner of the dive shop my write-up of how they really need to change their pricing and packaging to take advantage of a different <laughs> market awesome. or like how the the surf operator needed to run more efficiently like I definitely wrote several little mini business plans and so I said okay I think this is my calling I actually love the idea of starting and building and thinking about business and so my I said look I'm going to go back to business school but I'm never going to work for corporate America again and only start a company companies where I can control the culture and the ethics so an Enron situation wouldn't happen again and so love that yeah so then so you did just that you started Derma Lounge I started Derma Lounge and so Stanford so they have you write this with I which I would totally do with kids so when we started we had to write a letter to ourselves like at the beginning of our two years and then we got it back at the end and it was almost like what are the promises that you're making and my thing I mean it sounds I don't know, quite a very, I guess, privileged now, but I, my thing was like, I've, I've done everything in my academic career and work thus far that was always about taking the hardest classes and getting the best grades and being the best and being the president of all these organizations. And so I'm like, this is my time to not do that. And this is my time to um, just focus on the experience itself. And so that's, that sort of was my take on or that that's how I approached um business school and so I don't know if if that approach but I I just came away with an incredibly um you know just incredible friends and people who are now all over the world and you know when I go to London I see people and it's like no time ever passed and so I feel like that that to me was um definitely probably the best benefit for business yeah. school. Yeah. And so tell me the idea behind Derma Lounge. Oh, Derma Lounge. Okay. So then stubborn me. So when I graduate, I say, okay, I'm definitely starting a company, but I'm not going to do nothing finance related, nothing energy related. I need to find things, start a company in something I like. So my buckets were travel, wine, and spa. And so- <laughs> You're my kind of girl. I'm like done and done. <laughs> So, and I wrote, I did that. Yeah, we wrote, wrote a wine business, a uh, business plan for importing that didn't really come to fruition. And then I wrote a great business plan. I, I'll still do this one day. Um, mind, body, soul rejuvenation retreats around the world and did a little um, personal investigation, but I needed, I guess so no one would fund that job out of, or fund that business um, as it were. So then I um, actually partnered with somebody who had a version of a, a day spa in San Francisco and they were trying to figure out what to do with it. And so kind of researched the, the market and wrote this business plan that turned up being Derma Lounge. And then that was the, what I, what I ran after that. And it was, a, it was very early days, basically a, a medical spa. And then it, it was early days for that. And the idea was bringing um, anti-aging treatments and skin health out of the doctor's office and into the upscale urban spa. And so giving that 
experience um, with the result. And how did it go? Well, it went, I'd say, okay. I think it was a great learning for me. Um, I learned several things. One, I did not enjoy operating a retail company. Um, I didn't love the... Yeah, I, feel, I didn't love the operations of that business. So I, I learned that. I learned um, that the the small company is just, it's just grinding and really, really hard, right? The toilet is not working and I get called in the middle of the night or the fire alarm goes off. Um, and so I think those are all, you know, great for grit and understanding. We ended up with... Um, two locations in the, one in San Francisco and one in Burlingame launched a product line. So I really enjoyed launching the product line and doing the branding around that. Um, and if I liked more of the, the external pieces of it, I did like, you know, managing and developing the team. I just didn't, um, I didn't love the small business. And then when I was trying to you know, my vision for world domination and skin health, which now it's totally taken off in private equity, invest in, um, in these things. So I was early, but at the time it was 2008 and I was trying to raise money to go much bigger. Um, and it was 2008. And so I couldn't, and it's like, I don't want to sit around and run a too small, it's just a small company. And at that point in my life, I wanted to do something different. And so what was interesting about Derma Lounge was we were one of Yelp's first customers. We are one of the first people who um, used a brand page on Facebook and our best customers were word of mouth referrals and it, both from customers and from our employees. And so for me, it was like, is there something with tech and social and advocacy and could that be a business in and of itself? And so the earliest iteration of first stuff was something to um, that had all of those those components um, around social advocacy for brands. What was the first name and what was the first business idea? Yeah, no, and it's funny because it, there were so many different twists and turns. The first the iteration, what's what's now first up, um, before it was social chorus, and it was the idea that you're bringing your your employees together into chorus to sort of share saint on social. And so that was the, the name for that concept. Um, and then we sort of got bigger and, and just said, before you can ask employees to share how great you are on social media, they need to feel connected and understand the purpose of the company. And there's a real void in corporate communications and any technology that they have. So think old email, intranet, you know, all of the bad, bad things that can, bad and bad old tech that companies give their people. And so we thought um, there was a huge opportunity just to disrupt, um, disrupt that. And especially in technology to, to reach the frontline worker. And that was someone who was, you know, really not connected with tech. This is obviously way, way before pandemic and all of the thousands of things that have been rolled out, but um, that was, early days in um, just helping people connect with their, all of their people and make them feel really connected to um, the culture. And 
we were able to convince big companies like Boeing and Dow and Hilton in the early days to partner with us and be our customers. And they really loved kind of the vision that, you know, I presented as far as what we could do with them. And so that was kind of the early iteration of what is now first step. So how were you selling it? Like if I'm Boeing and you're coming to me and you're selling me what you can do for me, what is mm-hmm. the what is the pitch exactly? And is it the same pitch today? No, it's it, it's a, it's variation. What we were doing now. So then in 2015, it was, you know, you you need you need a way to connect with your frontline workforce. And at Boeing, it, the the pitch was, you know, you have 100,000 employees who are building your planes who are not connected with the stories and the culture, and they're the ones who are creating the stories and the culture. And so they need a consumer-like technology. In those days, we were only selling a mobile app, but you need something to help them share stories, connect with each other, and you get data on what's working and what's not. So that was the 2015 pitch. Um, And now the pitch today is um, about making the employee experience better for every worker from the moment in all the moments that matter. So even when you're, you get a job, you get an offer in this pre-hire moment to onboarding, to learning, to getting a promotion, to going on leave. And of all of these moments are opportunities for better connection with your employer, better engagement. And that's what ultimately drives productivity and retention. And so it's a, a platform to manage that employee experience and all of those moments that matters to the employee. So it's okay. So the communication piece is, Mm -hmm. is kind of a facilitation of the ultimate outcome of engagement. Exactly. So our premise is that all of these problems that employers, they're all communication problems. Yeah. Interesting. So we just did, um, you know, we're small. I know that your target audience, your target customer is like fortune 500, like enterprise. Yeah. I mean, we have any, any company with over a thousand people, even 500 could really benefit from us, but we have, but we have, you know, 40 of the fortune 100 are customers. So we do have a lot of large customers. That's incredible. You should feel, I mean, that's like really hard to, to, I, I don't know many people that could say that. So tell me how you're thinking about the business now, like how to stay ahead of the business and just in general, stay competitive. Yeah. So I'm really looking, if I think about the employee experience and where, where that is compared to the customer experience, um, the employee experience is in a much more nascent spot. And I recently brought on this incredible chief product officer, a woman named Cheryl Chavez, who built out and was the chief product officer at Marketo, one of the leading wow. customer experience platforms. Then she was chief product officer at Bloomreach doing a similar thing. So she completely understands the customer experience and she's bringing that to the employee experience. Um, and it's interesting because now as employers, we have to almost think of our people, we almost have to market to them to get their attention, right? And so things have to be hyper-personalized, targeted to them, drive signal through the noise. And then there's all of this data that we give to our customers to really understand what's happening in their employee base. And so for example, we have um, 
PBH, who's the, the parent company of uh, Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein, they've been a customer for several years and they have connected usage of the platform to um, much, much higher levels of, um, of staying, so a lack of attrition. So people who are staying, especially in retail, kind of 5X, 6X longer than people who um, were not engaged. And so that's kind of changed how they are, you help helping people and guiding them on a place of kind of positive performance and ultimately retention. Um, we have another great example, a customer called Extreme Networks. They're a global technology company um, who does a lot of like Wi-Fi for the NFL. And they noticed that their, their sellers who were the most um, active users on the platform were the ones hitting quota. And so they made that correlation and then they changed how they're doing all of their onboarding to their new sellers. And they basically are taking the insights that they found from the platform and driving action. And in this case, action is helping their sellers hit quota. Um, so we're just seeing a lot of really great examples of taking action that can predict either bad things like, like attrition, um, like poor performance, or even things like a safety incident, first to be able to predict those things, which is that in and of itself is incredibly, um, incredibly valuable. And then if you take it a step further and say, we've got these insights that we're getting based on the engagement or lack thereof, and then we have a platform to really drive that action um, and can take people on a, a positive journey to performance, to retention, to productivity. Um, and that's something that obviously every employer will need um, now and into the future. 100%. Well, not just obviously because the cost of attrition is, I think it's like one and a half times um, mm -hmm. their salary or something. I don't know what the actual statistic is, something crazy. But then also just the whole, like, if they're more engaged, then they're more likely to be um, A, like referring their friends to come work mm -hmm. at the company or, you know, kind of singing the praises of the company, but also being really good to the customers, you know, because they feel good about working at the company. So. Yeah, yeah the, the ROI is huge. It pays for itself, hundred percent. Definitely. Yeah, and we're even connecting like patient in healthcare, the the employee experience to the patient satisfaction, highly correlated, mm -hmm. right? And looking at different different areas um, or different facilities, and those that are more engaged have higher patient satisfaction scores. Very similar to hospitality and anyone who's um, in retail as well. Interesting. Are you one of the key kind of revenue generators? Um, I I always was. I think now I like to say I've, I've I'm I'm not needed to close big deals, which is great. Which means we we know how to scale. Um, I still am brought in for pitches when there is a CEO who comes, or it's a you know it's a it's a really big company. I was obviously involved in our Amazon deal, for example, um, our Tesco deal, those are two of our largest customers. Mm -hmm. So for some and of who, those, who I in the company are you pitching? Who's the consumer within like, what title does that person have? Yeah, I mean, usually the buying committee, it's a, a head of communications, a chief communications officer, there's a chief people officer, and then the CIO. So those are the three main 
um, personas who at the end of the day, who we need to, we need all of them on board yeah. um, to, to make the, the purchase. And um, so I know your title is co-founder and CEO. Um, who are your co-founders? How did you meet them? And I guess when you're thinking about, um, you know, being when you're thinking about who you should uh, choose as a co-founder, mm-hmm. what was your vetting process? I know that um, that's a big choice. It's like a marriage, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And with our twists and turns, so the other interesting part about First Step is we actually were the merger of two big competitors. So Social Chorus was the company I was a co-founder of. And my current co-founder was the co-founder of Dynamic Signal, the company that, that Social Chorus merged with. And so now the two of us as founders of First Step were both co-founders of our, our various companies ah, that okay. were staunch competitors. So that part was funny when we first met and started having conversations of, oh, what would this be like? And we were sharing stories of just winning and losing deals, right? Because the deal that I won, he lost. The deal that he won, I lost. And so it was just really fun to compare um, each of our versions of those those wins and losses along the way. So that's an, kind of an, an interesting, I don't know, becoming co-founders, I guess, which is um, non, non-traditional. And then my, my first co-founder um, from Social Chorus, he was someone who I had met actually in business school when I was pitching him on um, another business plan that I didn't end up pursuing, but I he um and then and he ended up being a mentor so he was a friend of someone i had worked for in the summer who was an angel investor type he was about 15 years older than me and so we are at just different points in our career and he didn't end up investing he didn't invest in derma lounge um but we just stayed in touch during that period and he would be someone who you know, I would go to and be like, okay, they don't teach you this in business school. This stuff is really, really hard. He would kind of talk me off the ledge. And then he would vet all these ideas of like, I've got this idea. What do you think about this? And so at a certain point it was like, well, we should, why don't we just do something together? So that was, that was how um, that relationship came to be. That's so nice to have that, uh, that person in your life. And so Tell me about the funding of the business and how much did you raise and and how much have you raised so far? Yeah, and that's also like all these questions with all of the twists and turns. Um, I won't bore you with the whole funding thing because it was different, but the kind of our biggest um, funding was in 2020. So Sumeru Equity Partners made a pretty big investment um, over maybe $140 million. Um, and then that have, you know, they're, they're our majority investor. And then with, with them, um, we then kind of acquired, merged with um, Dynamic Signal and then became first up. And so that's, um, you know, our main, main investor today. And when you, but when you bootstrapped the York company originally mm-hmm. was it just with the with the angel investor that you were talking about or did you raise VC or how did you originally fund your business 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he put in, so Derma Lounge was like friends and family. So that one, I went and raised money. Um, the, my main investor, like put, put in money. I didn't have any money to put in. Um, so that was more of friends and family and we didn't do anything institutional there. Um, with Social Chorus, my co-founder put in money. Um, we got some, you know, it was a big private, like more, it wasn't a, you know, a named VC that, that you heard of. It was, um, Kohlberg Ventures. So, um, Jim Kohlberg, like, who's like part KKR? of KKR. Yeah. Yeah. So that's his dad. And then he did private equity and then he had a venture arm. And so he was our investor from early on, um, and still an investor now. So he's sort of been with us through all the twists and wow. turns. That's amazing. Wow. So tell me about the business model. How does the company make money? Yeah. So our software is a service model. So we sell our incredible platform to companies and they pay us and we, the sales team tries to sell at least three-year deals. Um, and we continue to manage that subscription model and continue to add functionality and build new products. And then we can continue to, I don't like to say charge more. I say deliver more value and ask for um, the, the equivalent of, of that from a monetary perspective. Yeah. And I'm guessing, so when you say you raised um, all that money in 2020, was it pre-pandemic or post-pandemic? And it was crazy. It was kind of during, which was nuts. So we, and we had been talking to this investor group a year before. So we had actually met them in person oh, before the pandemic. Yeah. So we, at least we knew them, yeah. um, but the whole thing, but it was still bizarre doing the whole transaction yeah, over Zoom. Yeah. Over Zoom. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's crazy. And how did mm -hmm. the pandemic, I'm guessing the pandemic would have increased your business because people are more concerned than ever about engagement and communication. Like that was the topic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, we have these stories of people literally like calling us on a Friday saying, if I sign a contract by Monday, can we be live the next Friday? Yeah. Right? Like people who had They're run through panicking. a whole sales cycle, we pitched. Yeah. Or people who had signed, like I remember Hyatt had signed, but they were planning on a longer launch. And then it's like, nope, we need to launch next Thursday. So we had some really cool, just stories of being able to really help. Um, MGM was another one. So unfortunately, you know, they obviously had to furlough and a lot of their people, but we were able to, you know, the CEO really wanted to deliver transparent, authentic communications and offer other places they could work in the interim. And so we were able to give, you know, send certain messages to people who were um, being furloughed, different from the messages of the people who are staying. And then there were different types of messages to different people in different parts of the world. So there, the need for our platform, especially from a CEO perspective, became just acute. Like I say, the, the pandemic made the made a communications problem a CEO problem. Oh, um, huge, huge. Yeah. Well, we yeah. just did an offsite. We never really do offsite. So, but we're trying to um, you know, take this opportunity to take the business to the next level. And, and I'm focused on this kind of stuff. And there was a few gaps in communication and I totally pride myself on communication. And obviously we're a small company, so it seems like that would be easy. And there were a few things that were brought up by employees that I'm like, huh? Like, how did you not know that? I speak about it in meetings. I've talked about yeah. it 
but obviously I had not spoken clearly enough. And it was an aha moment for me that it was either a systems issue or a communication issue that I'm just not engaged in. And I can only imagine it at a huge company level that that would be Mm -hmm. top of mind. Um, So, wow, that's incredible. And how have you gone about setting your own company culture and how has it been impacted through COVID? Yeah. So we use our own product. I like to say we drink our own champagne. So I thought that is a big part of how we, we stay connected. Um, I have my whole executive team living in different places. So we have a completely distributed workforce. We have 400 people um, kind of in the, in the U S and Europe. And so what I do intentionally, especially with my ELT, like we have a cadence of when we get together. So one of the things I did in San Francisco, that was our kind of quarterly ELT um, get together. And then we did kickoffs at the beginning of the year for the field and had our EMEA kickoff in Belfast. We've got a big team both in London and Belfast. And so we brought that team together and we had our North America team in Chicago. So kind of having big tent pole moments of getting people together, work and fun and just connecting because you need that. Um, And then I think if you have enough of those tent pole get togethers, then I do think you can work really effectively in a distributed fashion. Um, You know, it's, it's never, it's never perfect. It's never easy. Yes. We misuse Slack, you know, all, all of, all of the things, but um you know, it's, it's like with anything, you have to be intentional about the the team and the culture that, that you're building. Yeah. And so how has your um, strategy changed as far as thinking about recruit? Have you always been distributed or just post? No, we were even that way before COVID. Oh, you, so that's mm-hmm. great. So, mm-hmm. um, so nothing's really changed as far as your recruiting. Um, but what is your go-to-market kind of messaging about... Um, you know, what makes your company special if you're trying to pitch somebody I'm joining? Yeah. So our, our culture is what, what makes us really special. I've had people for, from their short 10 years to very mature in their career, tell me this is the best place that they've worked. And I think it's a combination of, um, what we do has purpose. So our, our ethos is really about reaching every worker and having that be our North star. And we have a lot of people who, you know, families and parents grew up in manufacturing and working on a production line, and they weren't seen as kind of worthy enough of great technology like executives would have. And so that that message really does connect. And we have just you know, all these incredible stories and examples of our customers, whether it's, you know, at Providence and how we're helping the, the front line or what Ford is doing in manufacturing that, that really does help fuel our culture. And then, um, you know, we do live, one of my favorite business books is Ben Horowitz, What You Do Is Who You Are. Um, and so it's like, we do live our core values. There we win as a team, leadership is in our build and we are all, we are all owners. So like teamwork is hugely important, both with all of us and then together with our customers. And that is something that, People from the outside coming in say, my gosh, you guys really do care about each other and want to be helpful. So I think that that definitely is something that um, that permeates. And then, you know, we do have a lot of 
competitive people who like to win. So that's the, the, the leadership piece. And obviously from my background with Enron, part of me is, you know, we always lead with integrity and that's non-negotiable. Um, and so that's, that's something that I've obviously held super firm on. And then we give everyone equity. So we are actually, everyone is an owner in the company, which is something that's really important to me. And I want people to have the accountability and responsibility to know that they can make decisions and they can make mistakes. Fine. I say, don't, don't make the same mistake several times, but I'd rather have you try and do something, even if it's, you know, even if you fail kind of rather than not try, but really own, um, you know, that success or failure. And I do want everyone to feel pride in what we're doing and in the company's success. Yeah. And so um, when you're like going to bed at night, what's keeping, what's keeping you awake aside from uh, the upcoming week of travel and trying to balance it all? Um, what are you thinking about the next three to five years of the business? and kind of how to, how to make sure that you stay um, competitive and successful? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm always thinking just how to grow. So we're um, just crossing over the $100 million revenue mark. So super kind of proud of that. And then I'm always thinking, okay, how do we get to 250? And what are the things that we need to do both from just the, the operational piece and making sure that we're operating really efficiently and we're built for scale. And then what are those strategic bigger bets that we can make just from a, a positioning standpoint, from an M&A standpoint. And so all of these things are usually swirling in my head. I'm sure. Um, and so how do you relax, kind of unwind? Are you able to shut it down um, outside of work? Well, I really try. Um, yeah, so look, my, my family and my kids keep me sane. Um, my husband may disagree. Um, but no, I, I really, I think that I'm a, a better mom. I don't know if I'm a better wife, but definitely a better mom with, with my job. And I think that I am better at my job because, um, I'm a mom and have, have other things to do. So, um, I do try to compartmentalize and definitely have, focused family time um, where I, I do turn off um, what's probably a lot of noise and, and focus on my family. That's great. That's a skill and that's a discipline. So one I need to learn from you. Okay. My ultimate question is what fuels you? Yeah, it's my kids. My boys. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.